We're going to be in John chapter 16 this morning. John 16, verses 1 through 15. John 16, verses 1 through 15. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we just are so thankful that you left us your Holy Spirit. Lord, if there's a time in our, our lives, in our, our nation, that we need not only an outpouring of your Holy Spirit uh, to our country, but to us personally as, as your church. Lord, I ask this morning uh, that you would allow us to uh, hear your voice through your word this morning. Lord, that you would direct uh, our steps, the way that you want us to walk at this time. Lord, I, I pray for a special anointing on it. Lord, if there's, if there's one thing that I need in my life, and I'm sure everyone here does, it's the power of the Holy Spirit operating. Lord, give us a sensitive ear to hear your voice this morning. Lord, equip us. Lord, we want to take a moment again and, and lift up our nation. Lord, I, I again ask that your Holy Spirit would move on those hearts uh, of our leaders that don't know you. Lord, we, we pray that you would renew their minds, open their eyes, change their hearts. Lord, that you would put people in their path with that boldness that you promise us to, to speak truth into them, 
and that their hearts would receive it. Lord, we pray for those leaders in our country that know you, that you would give them extra strength and endurance to stand against all the fiery darts of the enemy that are going forth now. Lord, I just pray for favor for them. Lord, that you would give them voice to be heard. And Lord, we just, again, we want to invite you here this morning to speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. As we <clears throat> continue in John chapter 16, I want to remember to keep reminding you all, myself, we're still dealing with the final few hours before Jesus' crucifixion. There's five chapters of John that deal with the final hours before the arrest. And as we gather into them, as we look at them, as we read the things that Jesus is going to tell his disciples, you want to remember that they're about to witness the most horrific thing they had ever seen. Someone who they loved and followed for three years is going to be tortured and killed before them. They're, they're going to be witness to the atrocities of, of the government, uh, taking someone uh, without claim, without guilt. And all of these things are going to fill their hearts with despair. And they're going to want to quit and run, cut bait. You, don't, you think we created bug out bags? They had bug out bags back then. We're not the first people who thought about, I got to keep something by the door in case I need to get out of here quick. The, the reality is, back in those days, they're thinking, you know what? If, if, uh, if this all turns south, we'll just head for the hills. And that's exactly what's going to happen to them. And as Jesus, knowing what's coming, knowing how they're going to respond, he's giving them words of promise. Words they can hold on to so that when it happens, they can know, wait a minute, Jesus knew this was coming. He told us ahead of time that they're not going to respond correctly any more than we always respond correctly, right? But we have an advantage they didn't have yet. They had a promise of the Holy Spirit. Today we have him. He is with you. If you are a believer, he is here to encourage, to guide. And as Jesus is telling them, he's going to say something today that's kind of mind-blowing. And if you can't wrap your mind around it, you won't understand the value of the, of the Spirit of God. Jesus said, it's better for you that I leave. And most of us can't wrap our head around that. I think it'd be better if you were here physically, visibly. I could see you. I could touch you. I think that would be best. But Jesus said it's not. It's for your advantage I go away. Now here's what you need to understand. Jesus is talking about the cross. It's to your advantage I go. He, this was, this event, this 
24 hours, three days they're going to suffer until resurrection morning. If you can get your head kind of wrapped around it, you'll, you will comprehend the joy of Easter. But if you can't do the night before the crucifixion, if you can't put yourself you know, emotionally into what's going on, you're going to miss the joy on the other side of it as well. So we have incredible despair. We have all kinds of bad news on bad news on bad news at the end of a long meal and a long night already. We know when Jesus gets them to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And he asks them to pray with him, what are they going to do? They're going to fall asleep. Because they already had a big meal. They've had a very frustrating and fearful conversation. They're uptight and agitated about what's going on. They're wore out. So as they're on that walk, still, from the upper room to Gashmone, as they're on their walk to that place, Jesus has words of promise for them. It's not just words of suffering and persecution, but he has words of promise. His words of promise began in John 15, 26. So just look back a couple of verses and we'll see what he said. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth that proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. So he's telling them, I'm going to send a Helper. I'm going to send a counselor. There's, there's someone who's going to come alongside. The word is paraclete, alongside to help. He's going to be there, coming alongside. He's going to bear witness of me. He's going to be bearing witness of Christ. And because he is, in verse 26, verse 27 says, and you also will bear witness. Because you have been with me from the beginning. You have in this group of men walking from the upper room down to uh, the Kidron Valley back up on the Mount of Olives. You have here the eyewitness account that will become the New Testament that is sitting in your lap. Because you will bear witness of me, you and I have that account. Because the Holy Spirit is going to be alongside. Because the Holy Spirit is going to equip. And so you also will bear witness of me. Why? One, because you have been with me from the beginning. And I'm telling you this so you won't fall away. So you won't despair. So you don't grab the bug out bag and head for the hills. I'm telling you this so you know. There is still a purpose in it all. Now these guys, we, Scripture tells us, right? The Gospel of Mark tells us, we'll look at it a little bit later. <clears throat> They're all going to run to a man. Now two of them are going to sneak up behind the guys and be there when Jesus is being accused and beaten at the house of Caiaphas. But for the most part, everybody scatters. Everybody does scatter at the beginning. Two guys sneak in. Remember, Peter's going to stay at a distance. He's going to get himself in trouble, just like Jesus said he would. 
He finds himself in trouble. He goes out, runs out of that place, weeping bitterly, and John's going to kind of follow the process. What's going on with Jesus? He'll be there at the foot of the cross. So Jesus can say to John, Behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And John would care for Jesus' mom until she died in Ephesus. So as we look at these events, he's saying, look, you're all going to flee. You're all going to run. Because right now, as we look at the lives of the disciples, they are apart from the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 20, Jesus is going to say to the disciples, receive ye the Holy Spirit. I consider that to be the same as let there be light. When Jesus says, it happens. John chapter 20, they're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit will empower them for ministry. And they will then become men you can't hardly recognize. In fact, when they get arrested, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are going to say, weren't these the knuckleheads that were with Jesus? That's Jackie paraphrase. Because he's, they're, he's, they're just amazed at, now they're bold. Something changed in their life. This is the thing that Jesus is promising in John 16. In Isaiah 26, verse 3, it says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. A vital thing for us to hold on to. The Lord does not need your starry-eyed optimism. He needs your focus on Him. Starry-eyed optimism is not a necessity. That's good for me because I am a glasses-empty guy, even if it's half full. I struggle with being optimistic, I don't know, maybe it's from the coach in me, I could always find out what you did wrong. You could have intercepted a pass, ran it back for a touchdown, and I could tell you what was wrong. How you made the wrong read, why you step, why'd you step with the wrong foot. There was always something that could be improved, for good or bad. I could always understand that. What the Lord is saying in Isaiah 26.3, and what God wants his disciples to understand, is that our ability to be bold, our ability to be witnesses for Christ, our ability to stand strong in these days does not depend on your optimism or your pessimism. It depends on your attention. He said he will keep him in perfect peace whose eyes are stayed on the Lord. Not CNN or MSNBC or Fox. Or whatever other, I, I don't know. If I want to have a bad day, I go home and watch the news. And then I can be grumpy for the rest of the day. So I try not to do that. But what is it that the Word tells me? The Word tells me, He'll keep me in peace if I keep my mind stayed on Him. But don't forget the second part of the verse. Why? Because what? He trusts in you. When we keep our eyes on the Lord, we trust in him. Paul will say in Philippians, not that I have already achieved or have already attained, but this one thing I do, 
forgetting those things which lie behind, I press on toward the upward call of Christ Jesus my Lord. I put my eyes on the prize and I keep moving forward. This is the message that Jesus is laying out for them. He's giving them hope. In a few hours, all their hope is going to be stripped away in the most horrific way imaginable. And certainly in this last year, 365 plus days, I cannot tell you for how many people, how many families, that exact event has occurred in their family. Something happened that strips away all hope and you are left with utter despair. And you have no answers for where, when, why, how. Isaiah 26.3 will still be true. He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. We hold fast of this same promise that Jesus gave and we keep our eyes focused on the prize. He goes on in verse 2 to say, Now, here's what's coming. They will put you out of the synagogues. So you have good Jewish boys for whom all of their social life is wrapped up in the ability to be part of a social network. We understand social networks, right? Well, back then, Facebook was a synagogue. The area where you went to talk, the area where you went to, to meet with your friends, if you wanted to get together and say, hey, hey, Mom, I'm going to go hang out with my friends. You, you met over at the synagogue. Everything about life was centered around the synagogue. So to be put out of the synagogue meant to be cut out, cut off from society. Now, there were lots of other societies, but none of them was family. None of them were the people you grew up with. And so what Jesus is saying is the time's going to come. They're going to put you out. You have lived your life in this, in, in this situation. These men had lived their lives as proud Jewish men and a proud nation that God chose, that God was going to do great things in. They were patriotic to the core if among the disciples, you have guys that were super hardcore against Rome. And as they, you have these guys all, and Jesus says to them, here's what's going to happen. They're going to throw you out of Israel. They're going to say, you can't be part of the nation anymore. Now today in Israel, nobody cares if you go to synagogue or not. The vast majority of Israel does not believe at all. It's a secular nation. It's not a holy nation. Does God have a plan for him? Sure, he still has a plan for him, but it's not happening today. I'm not one of those who thinks it happened in 1948, although I think things started moving. You have to have a nation for the nation to come back to the Lord, but they're not there. You go visit Israel today, it's no different than going to New York or any place else. He said, they're going to throw you out. They're going to ostracize you from that which, by which you have your identity. And I think, if I'm honest, church, these days are coming for us as well. Because the days are going to come when you're going to have to choose whether you are a good United States citizen or a follower of Christ. 
you're going to have to choose whether you're a, a, a patriot for this nation or a patriot for Christ. Because those things are becoming more and more diametrically opposed. Do you understand? Uh, I know you would like to think that being a good Republican means you're a good Christian. And, and maybe once it was like that, but it's not like that now. And more and more, the polls are going to become opposing polls. Jesus told his disciples that same thing. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to put you out. They're going to put you out. What are the first voices they're silencing on Facebook and Twitter? What are the first voices? Or you might say, President Trump, he's not first. He's just the one everybody notices because he's on the head, he makes a headline. When they throw Robert Gagnon out, most people say, who's that? Why do I care about him? Because he's an outspoken believer who says the truth and the public spaces are being closed off to believers who speak the truth. Because if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, if you believe the things that the Bible teaches, you are going to get pushed to the fringe. You are the crazy people, the wild-eyed people, the people that are not enough educated and need to go to special camps. And in those special camps, maybe we can re-educate them. And if you think that's only from a book, Stand by. Jesus told his disciples, don't be afraid. I've given you a helper. And these days are coming for you. They experienced it. Christian brothers and sisters around the world have already experienced it. It's coming home. They will put you out of the synagogue. Excommunication. Indeed, <clears throat> the hour is coming that whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now, in the lives of the disciples, there is a name that goes there. What name? Of a man who killed disciples, who hunted down believers, and killed them in service to God. What's his name? That's right. He said, I'm doing God's work. I'm going to clean up these streets, these crazy Christians. We've got to get rid of them. And so he had the blood of who knows how many believers on his hands. I love the, the movie, The Apostle Paul, that they did. That, that um, the thing, you know, Paul, we often argue about what was the thorn in Paul's flesh? What was the thing he suffered through? In the movie, it was the memories of all the people he had killed in service to God. And that was the thing that haunted him. And it was neat because at the end of the movie, right, it's the death of Paul. They chop off his head. He goes to heaven and the people who meet him, who greet him first, are all those dreams he had had about the people he had slain welcoming him to heaven. It's a beautiful picture. As we look at it, this is what he's, he's describing. He's, he, he's not telling us, look, I'm not telling you this to make you fearful. I, by the time we get to the end, if you're fearful, you didn't hear me. But I want you to understand, this, Jesus said, these days are coming to his disciples, and these days are coming for you. And if it's not you, it'll be your kids. Or your grandchildren. 
if you're my age. And if that's true, then we owe a debt to them. And we ought to be doing what God has ordained us to do for them. We ought to be teaching them. Holding them, discipling them, for the hour is coming. Listen, and they will do these things because they have not known me or the Father. Jesus is saying, these, these are people that don't know me. If they know me, this, this wouldn't be what they did. I always kind of, uh, I don't know if alarm is the right word. It, but it always, I'm going to use it because I can't think of any other one. So it always kind of alarms me when people feel free to complain about the bride of Christ. Well, man, let me ask you who are married. How, how much do you appreciate someone coming and telling you how much of a dirtbag they think your wife is? Do you appreciate that? Do you usually just sit back and go, yeah, you're right. <laughs> If, if you're a man, usually it means somebody's about to get socked. Right? So when people come and they say, you know what? The church is just a bunch of hypocrites and they're good and this and that. And that they, those, those statements may be true. But you are talking about the bride of Christ. You are talking about his baby. And I don't think it's okay. That's why Jesus told us, what do you do? Well, don't come tell me how messed up the church is. What do you do? The Bible is very clear, abundantly clear. I have aught with my brother, I go to my brother. I have aught with my sister, I go to my sister. I have a problem with somebody in the body, I talk to them. So that I might be reconciled. So that there might be peace. Jesus said, look, they don't know me, so this is why they're doing this thing. And I would warn us against being overly harsh against the church as an entity. And when I talk about the church, I'm talking about believers, not what the world calls the church. People who believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who are trusting him as their Lord and Savior. Yeah, that's the church. Anybody who shows up to church on Sunday, may or may not be the church. I don't know. But if those things are true, then you are part of that family and you have been forgiven by God and you are considered, according to the word, just men, just mankind. This includes you two ladies. Just men made perfect before God. Why are you perfect? Because you never messed up again? You never did anything wrong again? Why are you perfect? Because the blood of Jesus Christ makes you that way. The blood of Jesus Christ washes you clean. So when you look at someone who's been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and you have a disparaging word, be careful. Because if someone is in Christ, it is impossible to attack them without going through the body of Jesus first. They are in Christ Jesus. So we, 
we ought to be careful. That's why the natural response from the believer is to love one another. Why? Because we're all where? In Christ Jesus. We're all covered in Christ. And if we're covered in Christ, we all love Christ, don't we? So this should be a natural outpouring out of us. It said, Jesus goes on in verse 4, But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember I told you. These aren't shocking events. It's not like God forgot what was going on. He lost track of time like we do. Does that ever happen to you? You lose track of time? Sitting around, I don't know, maybe you got into watching a game. I, I don't watch games anymore. It's the only thing I can think of right now. But you're watching a basketball game or a football game, and, and you are so into the game and what's going on, you lose track of time, and oh my gosh, I forgot to go pick up the kids at school or whatever. My grandkids, my grandkids, this is a rule. I forgot this rule, but this is a rule. Grandpa, don't make us the last kids to get picked up. <laughs> this is a rule. We can't, but you know, someone has to be last. <laughs> and the likelihood of Grandpa forgetting he was supposed to pick you up today is high. But it, I'll take you to ice cream when I do it. So maybe it's not so bad. <laughs> These are the rules, right? But he, Jesus says, look, God hasn't forgotten. He's on the throne. He knows what's going on. It all is a part of the purpose and the works of God. Um, and so we put our trust in him. Now, it's not that that answer is supposed to satisfy us. What's supposed to satisfy us is keeping our eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on him. He will keep your heart in perfect peace. Eyes on him. I was, I was reminded of that while we were singing. I don't remember, I don't remember what song it was or, or what line, but I was reminded of how many martyred saints entered into eternity singing songs together while horrific things were happening. And what a witness that was to a world that hated them for it. Jesus tells us, I, I want you to know these things are coming. Listen to what he said. But I, I remember I told them to you. I did not say these things to you in the beginning because I was with you. Think about it. Every time somebody came at Jesus' disciples, who, who intervened? Ah, Every time the scribes and Pharisees come up and go to the disciples, hey, how come you're eating with unwashed hands? Wasn't the disciples that answered? Jesus would put himself between them and his disciples. And he would say to them, it's not what enters your body that defiles the body. What defiles the body is what's already in your body. For the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Evil doesn't enter into your body because you ate with unwashed hands. Evil was already in your body before you ate in the first place. Jesus would intervene. He'd put himself between. He would intercede for his disciples and stand there. But now he's saying, now I'm telling you this because what? I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to be here. And he told them to love one another because you need to be here for each other. Right? That so we can stand in those same gaps for him scripture will go on in verse 5 he says but now 
I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? Well, they have asked. But when they're asking, they don't, they don't understand. The point of it is, Jesus saying, not none of you cares where I'm going. He's saying, look, you guys can't comprehend what I'm telling you. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to die. And all of these things were messing with their minds. I, uh, we can't hear this. Where are you going? What's happening? What's going on? Jesus said, look, I'm going to the Father. None of you asked me. And he tells them why. Why is it that they can't wrap their mind around it? Because I have said these things to you. What happened? Sorrow filled your heart. You ever had such an intense emotion you couldn't think about anything else? Intense grief, intense worry, intense concern. We used to live out on the, on the, what do you call that place, babe? Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say. What's that big hole the river runs in? Canyon? Look, guys, Alzheimer's going to be rough for me. <laughs> so we used to live out on the canyon, out in Filer, right? You could throw a rock almost to the edge. So uh, we, we live out there, surrounded by cornfields. It was paradise for Jackie, not for Kathy. But it was paradise for Jackie because you had to work at seeing other human beings because everything was corn all around you. For Kathy, all she could hear was the music for Children of the Corn. And she was, <coughs> she was, she was a little tripped out. So when we, were, when we lived in that house, we just fresh from California. Just fresh. And we weren't used to critters. There are critters that live in your house now. Now I have made peace with the critters. They got names. You know, they're fat because I feed them. Uh, but back then, you know, hey, we got to make sure we take care. Of it. So we threw out a bunch of bar bait. Never heard of that before I come here. We threw out a bunch of bar bait. And it was doing a good job killing the critters. But one day in the afternoon, I come home and there right in the middle of the floor is a dead mouse. And I look at that mouse and I say, I should probably take care of that before Kathy gets here. But it was just something, I don't mind touching dead animals. I shoot them and touch them all the time. But a dead mouse, meh. Seems like there ought to be a better way to do this. So I open up a kitchen drawer. And I pulled out. <laughs> Why are you people laughing already? <laughs> I pulled out a a set of tongs. I reached down and I picked up that mouse with them tongs and I threw it away. Perfect. Then I set it down on the counter. I figured I'd wash it later. So I went about my day. I come home and Kathy had made, you remember what you had made? So she had made roast was beautiful roast. Beautiful. And her and the kids, Cole and Joe, they're all sitting down eating this roast. 
And I come walking in, and I look in the crock pot. And there is the tongs. So nonchalantly, I just look over at Kathy, and I say, hey, did you wash those tongs? She's like, no, they're just on the counter. So at this moment, I am filled with an emotion that did not enable me to think well through the process of what I'm pretty sure I don't want to confess. <laughs> they're all eating from the dead mouse tongs. So I joined my family. <laughs> I, was, I was the only one with knowledge. But I grabbed them tongs like any proud father would do. If my family are going to eat dirty, rotten, dead mouse food, by God, I'll eat it with them. So I took my piece of roast and I did never tell Kathy until I told that story in church. <laughs> a few years ago, I told that story in church, and we got about 30 tongs <laughs> from different people. <laughs> she said, we could just throw away tongs now, so she never had to use the same tong. She had never had to use the same tong twice. Sometimes we're so wrapped up in what's going on, like we can't think about anything else. And for Jesus' disciples, that's what it was. They're so wrapped up in, you know, we gave up everything. We left it all. We're following Jesus. Everything's been going good, but tonight is weird. What's going on? What's happening? And they just can't wrap their minds around the things that Jesus is saying. So he's telling them, look, I know this because your heart is so full of grief. You're so worried about what's going on. You're so worried about the things that you see. But Jesus wants them to understand that the parting they're about to have with him is going to be intense. We get so used to reading the story, we distance ourselves from the emotion. And it's hard for us to, to feel it, to feel that intensity of the emotion that they're feeling, feel the intensity of the parting that they have that's going to come. And the sadness that has come will stay there until Easter morning. Sorrow has filled your heart. It's a perfect tense. It's a lasting sorrow. It's a sorrow that will be there until the day they see his face. So Jesus is letting them know, but he wants to remind them. He says, nevertheless, in verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now keep in mind, when he says I go away, it's to your advantage I go to the cross. You understand that? Is it to the disciples' advantage that Jesus goes to the cross? Is it to your advantage that Jesus goes to the cross? Is it to your advantage that he dies, is buried, and rises again? Is it to your advantage he goes to the right hand of the Father until his enemies have been made his footstool. Absolutely. And it will be to your advantage on that day when he returns and sets his feet on earth. When the return of the king takes place. It's to your advantage that I am going away. He wants them to understand that. He wants them 
to know that. For if I do not go, the helper cannot come. Now the Holy Spirit, I want you to understand, the Holy Spirit has been working the world since the world began. The Holy Spirit is present at the beginning of creation. The Holy Spirit was part of what was going on in the world. The Holy Spirit would anoint the prophets for ministry. The Holy Spirit would guide kings and be, be it was, he had an integral part of all the things that had been going on in the world always. He's, he's been here just like God has, just like Jesus was before the incarnation. We have Christ in Old Testament. We see the appearance of God. So we see over and over and over again this manifestation of who God is throughout time. So when he says, he can't come unless I go, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is not there. What it means is, there's about to be a way that the Holy Spirit is going to be with people that has never happened. When David sinned with Bathsheba and he's facing Nathan the prophet and Nathan the prophet declares David to be that man. You're the man that has done this thing and David falls on his face. In Psalm 51, he writes a song about the experience, about the things that he went through. One of the things he says there is, Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. There was a reality where the Holy Spirit empowered and then the Holy Spirit left. Remember King Saul? So there was a real reality of that. But there was coming something that was appropriated through the atonement of Jesus Christ. There's something coming that's different than all of that because of the cross, because of that atonement, because of what Christ has accomplished, the reality that Jesus could say, I will never leave you or forsake you. The idea that the Spirit would be able to do what God only did prior to this in his temple. So Paul would write, do you not know your body is the temple of God? Why? Who lives there? Yeah. The Lord will live in you. So when he says, look, the Holy Spirit can't come, there's an event that's going to happen. Jesus is going to rise from the dead. He's going to walk over to his disciples he is going to do what was done in the old testament he is going to breathe on them the ruach the breath of god and he's going to say to them receive the holy spirit and the disciples are going to be ready now jesus is going to say to those guys stay here wait in this upper room and you wait until the spirit fills you with power There was a day that that was going to happen. It was called Pentecost. When they were filled with power and they went forth in ministry, empowered by the Spirit. And they were never the same again. Because now their bodies are the temple. The Lord lives inside them. The Holy Spirit is the empowerment. It's the energy for what they do. 
I love the illustrations when we talk about like a paperclip and a magnet, right? If you rub a paperclip on a magnet, it becomes magnetized for a while, right? You can do the same thing the magnet can do. But that's not what he's not talking about rub up against me every once in a while. No, he's talking about being connected, right? And the Bible lays out for us clearly. How is it that the Holy Spirit's going to function? As he will. Not as you will. If it was up to us, we'd make a mess of everything every time we had a chance. If you had the power to do what God could do, you know what this world would be like? You don't get it. The Lord says, I will give you what you need when you need it. What did Isaiah 26 tell us? He will keep your heart in perfect peace if you keep your eyes where? On him. Keep your eyes on him and trust him that he will give you what you need for the moment you need it. Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, it's to your advantage that I go because if I go, this can't happen. So I'm going to the cross. I'm making atonement. I'm making a way. I'm making a way for you to be able to experience these things that has never been under the old covenant, but is under the new. Listen, in John 7, 39, it says, Now this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. When was he glorified? On the cross. The whole act, death, burial, resurrection. I see all of that as one. The cross symbolizes all of that to me. The cross symbolizes his death, his burial, his resurrection. To me, that is the atonement, the atoning work of Christ. It is when he who knew no sin became my sin sacrifice for me that I might become, because of him, the righteousness of God. All of these things he is accomplishing. We know, because when we look at the lives of the disciples, what was it like? They all scattered. They all bail. They all run, or they want to do it their way. Wait a minute. You know, that's kind of like we are today. I want to do it my way, or I quit. No? If I can't do it my way, give me my ball back, I'm going home. Well, that, isn't that what the disciples did when Jesus was arrested? Peter had a way. What was his way? I, I'm, oh, fine. I'll die with him right here. Give me that sword. Yeah? And he cuts off some, some dude without a sword. That's who he swings at. Yeah, you know the high priest servant's not running around with swords. He wasn't the high priest ninja servant. <laughs> Peter goes after the... He, in one moment, that's all it takes him to go, who's the most likely guy I can take? <laughs> the high priest servant. You don't have a sword? Got a big ears. I got them. <laughs> so he goes after him. What? He wants to do it his way. Now, as soon as doing it his way, Jesus stops him and says, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. You want to live by doing it your way, you're going to die by doing it your way. Put that down. Puts the ear back on Malchus, heals him, is accepted in his uh, um, arrest, 
taken away, and Peter's left with, wait a minute, what just happened? I can't do it my way? No. You cannot do it your way. It's God's way. It's his way. That's why Isaiah 26.3 is so important. Because if you don't keep your eyes on him, your heart's not going to be in peace. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be all wrapped up about what do I do and how do I do it and what do I need to do to prepare and how many things do I need to have? How much food should I have in my basement? And all the things that we think about when we worry about all the stuff that's going on. But we say, I'm going to do it your way, God. I'm going to put my eyes on you. You've given me what I need to be successful. Your Holy Spirit will give me what I need when I need it. So my eyes are on you. It doesn't have to be my way. All the disciples scatter. Peter runs off. He ends up betraying him. But in Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 4, the disciples all come together. They've just been arrested. They've been arrested. They, they were threatened. If you don't stop talking about Jesus, we're going to kill you. And it's the same guys who killed Jesus. And it's only been a couple of months. So like, hey... It's not going to be hard for us to draw pictures of you guys put wanted posters up everywhere. We know what you guys look like. We know where you eat. We know who your family is. You keep talking about Jesus. We're going to do to you what we did to him. So the disciples come together and they pray. In Acts 4.31 it says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now they already had the Holy Spirit in them. This means they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give you the power you need when you need it. Not the way you want it, the way he wants it. That's what the Bible says. And so he gives you what you need when you need it. They were filled with the Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What did they need? Boldness. What did they get? Boldness. They needed boldness. They got boldness. The Holy Spirit empowered them for service. In Acts 5.41, these same guys who scattered on Jesus says, then they left the presence of the council. The council beat them. And this time, you know, they went out and they kept preaching Jesus' name. So the council gathers them together. Now they beat them. Okay, so if, look, if you guys aren't going to stop doing this, somebody whoop them. Get, get, the, get the stick out. So they, they get out the rods and they beat them. They beat them. So they get a similar beating, not the same beating as Christ, but they get a similar beating. And then they're released. Acts 5.41 says, They left the presence of the council rejoicing they were worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Was that the same guys? That's not the same guys who ran. It's not the same guys who scattered. It's not the same guys who argued about who's the greatest. Are they perfect guys? No. They're just like you and I. What do they have now? The Holy Spirit. Because the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit will give the gift he wills. As he wills. Can you ask? For sure. That's what we do every time we pray for healing, isn't it? Lord, we pray that you would move in, heal, heal this person. Sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no. Because it is as he will. 
And sometimes afterwards, we're left going, what was that about? I don't understand it. I've told you before. I have no idea why God healed me and not the twin boys in Redlands that died of AIDS. Twin little boys who got HIV because of blood transfusion. I got HIV because I'm a knucklehead idiot child who ran around like a banshee, and that's how I got it. And then for some reason, God cleans my blood. And so when we sat down and we prayed for these two little boys, I'm sure, God, if you're going to heal me, you're going to heal them. But he didn't. And the only answer that God gives me is Isaiah 26.3. He will keep his heart in perfect peace who keeps his eyes stayed on me because he trusts me. I can't tell you how many times in my life the Lord has whispered in my ear when disappointing things happen, heartbreaking things, horrific things, and I go before the Lord and I hear this still small voice whispering in my ear, do you trust me? And I say, yes. And that's all the answer I get. Because it's God's way, not Jackie's way. And I still go, I don't know why my way would have been worse, but I know who God is, and I believe he is able to do all he said he would do. I will trust in him. So the Lord says in John 16, 8, when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin. That's not plural. You see that word? Doesn't say he'll convict the world of sins. He's going to convict the world of sin, and he's going to describe what that sin is. Look at the rest of the phrase. He will con convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. What's the sin? Unbelief. Yeah, unbelief. Unbelief, that's what he's come for. In fact, Hebrews 3.12 encourages us. Take care, brothers, lest any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We don't want to be in a place of unbelief. That means we trust God, right? We put our eyes on him. We trust in him. This is the act of a believer. John 3.16. For God so loved the world. You guys know it, right? That whoever, here's the phrase, I don't want you to mess up. Whoever believing in him. Believing. It's, the word is not in the past tense. It's present. The soul that believes. This is a continuous, constant belief. Not I believed when I was three, and so now I'm good forever. No, I am believing in Christ. I am believing, I am trusting my life in his hand. We don't want, so what will the Holy Spirit do? He's going to convict. He's going to judge and sentence guilty the world of unbelief. He is going to convict, judge the world concerning righteousness. Why? Because there are none righteous, no, not one. Who's the only righteous one? Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. How do I become righteous? 
His righteousness is imputed to me by faith. I put my faith and trust in Christ. He who knew no sin became my sin sacrifice so that I might become his righteousness. He covers me in his blood. We sing songs about it all the time, right? There's power in the blood. What's that power? The power to make me righteous. He makes me righteous. His righteousness is on me. Jesus is emphasizing this. I go to the Father of righteousness because I go to the Father and you're not going to see me. I'm not going to be here to stand in the gap for you visually so that you see it. But my righteousness is covering you. And the Holy Spirit will convict this. He will will convict you of this. He will establish this concerning righteousness. He is my righteousness. And concerning judgment, because at the cross, the ruler of this world is defeated. The ruler of this world is defeated. He's not being defeated. He's not going to be defeated. He is defeated. It's over. It's done. We do not fight for victory, toward victory. We fight from victory. Because Christ is victorious. Not because he's almost victorious or we're almost there. We're almost realizing our glorification in Christ but he has already accomplished it. So he'll speak of our glorification as past tense while you and I live in it as a future tense here. We're looking for that day. He says that day is done. It's finished. It is accomplished. So we can know. Now listen, Jesus goes from this very statement This very statement, verse 12, he says, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. Listen to what he's saying. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. You're not ready for the rest. There's more things to come. There's more things, but you don't have the Spirit yet. I have many more things to tell you, but but first, I'm going to the cross, making way for the Spirit. The Spirit is going to enter you, and then... You will be ready. Look why. I'm saying this, verse 13. For when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. This should be uh, understood in light of John 14, 6. The Holy Spirit will lead you into all the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the, and the life. The Holy Spirit will guide you. He's going to You're going to understand. You're going to understand the things that Jesus was laying out for him. That light is going to dawn as a result of the Holy Spirit in the believers' lives, or the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples, and the Spirit will lead them. He will not speak on his own authority. This is an important concept. Jesus said it. The Holy Spirit said it because we need to understand that there are not diametrically opposed wills within the Trinity. The wills are all unified. So it's not like, here's what the Holy Spirit's trying to do, and then here's what Jesus is trying to do, and over there is what the Father is trying to do, and somehow all those things are going to work together. No, they're all unified. It's not about what Jesus, when Jesus says, nevertheless, not I will, but what you will, he's saying my will is not in misalignment with God. I'm not in opposition. It's not about me. It's about the unity of Yahweh, the unity of the Godhead. There is not diametrically opposed wills. 
So the Spirit doesn't speak on his own authority. He speaks whatever Yahweh says. The Son doesn't speak on his own authority. He speaks whatever Yahweh says. Because they are Yahweh. One God. One one focus, one unifying will. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he speaks. Whatever he hears. Didn't Jesus say the same thing? I'm not speaking my own authority. Whatever the Father tells me, these are the things I say. The same thing with the Spirit. There's not some kind of weird... In human people, if we put three people together, sooner or later, there's two are going to line up against one, Right? But not with, it's not so with God. God is not like that. God is utterly, perfectly one, perfectly unified, perfectly focused. One will moving forward, describing to us the truth of Christ. He will declare to you the things that are to come. What is he declaring? This is not a proclamation that he's going to tell you the future and he'll let you know when stocks are going to go up and when they're going to go down. And he's going to tell you all the things you need to know to, to get ahead in this life. No, what's he going to tell you? He's going to tell you the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to the disciples the totality of the work of Christ in accomplishing the church. That's what he's going to tell them. That's what's to come. What was next? What was next for these guys? What was the next thing being birthed? He's like, look, he's going to tell you the things to come. He's going to tell you the deployment of the church and the birth of the church. He's going to teach you how to take care of the church and how to teach the church. And he's going to bring to your mind the things you need to set down and write. And you're going to go from church to church. You're going to teach. You're going to find yourself huddled together as disciples here in Jerusalem. But don't worry. God's got a guy he's going to send around to all of them. And you're going to train up disciples from you who are going to go out and continue to do the work you've begun. Because if you die here without doing that, this all stops. And here we are 2,000 years later. And the plan hasn't changed. Go make disciples. In our day, my firm conviction is that we are in what I would call exile. We are under judgment. And as being under exile, I feel like, in my opinion, okay, I'm not telling you, thus saith the Lord, I'll let you know if that day comes, but he hasn't brought me before him in his counsel, so I'm probably not going to say that. But I am going to tell you what I think the word tells me is that it's time for God's people to start to understand we have lost our focus. We have lost generations because we're not discipling. We have lost people right and left because we have not taken on the serious role. We try to find somebody else to do it for us. Right? We all, I did this too. I brought my kids to church so that they would learn about Jesus. I should have been teaching my kids about Jesus at home. Every day, wherever we were, whatever we were doing. Now, I, can't, I don't have a time machine. I can't go backwards and do that. What can I do now? I got grandkids. You got kids. We can come together as a community and say we're going to be focused on discipling because that's the one thing Jesus told us to do, right? Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. So the word to the children of Israel in exile, I believe, from Ezekiel is you better train the next generation because your generation messed it up. 
better train the next generation. The next, some of the next generation is here. They're begging to be trained. They're begging to be discipled. They're begging to be poured into. What did the Bible say? How would that happen? The older will pour into the younger. The older women into the younger women. The older men into the younger men. That we would come together as a foundation together and prepare the next generation for what needs to be done. And we can say we're going to be all afraid, but if we just put our eyes on Christ, we'll have peace. We're supposed to do the job we were supposed to be doing all along that we ain't done. So we just need to be able to understand, to comprehend this word from Jesus to the body is, look, man, we have everything we need to fight from victory. You didn't lose. Christ won. We need to do what he told us to do. And we say, I don't know how to do it. Well, he said, I'll give you the helper. And he will empower you for whatever you need to do. So if God is calling us to do something, his commandment is also his enablement. Because he's empowered you through his spirit. And the spirit will give you what you need. But there's no magic pill. I don't have a red or blue pill I can give everybody. Here, take this pill. They only do that in TV shows. The reality is, it takes effort. So men need to gather around men and disciple one another and be prepared. So that they can go gather around men and disciple one another and be prepared. So they can go around, and so that the women can get around discipling women and go and be prepared. And then together, as family units, working within family units, and we develop and build and grow and become who God wants us to be. That's what God wants. We, we lost this because we didn't do that. Not because we didn't march on the corner, not because we didn't hold a billboard, not because we didn't elect the right guy or a wrong guy. We lost our place in this nation because we didn't do that. Disciple. That is the commission he calls us to. Jesus says in closing, this spirit will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What's he talking about? It's the same ideal. There's no division. Okay, there is what Jesus has, what the Father has, what the Holy Spirit has. And the Holy Spirit says, you can't have this because this is mine. And Jesus is not over here saying, you can't have this because this is mine. And the Father's not over here saying, you can't have this because this is mine. They are all focused together, unified. And that, listen, that, ladies and gentlemen, is to be the focus of the church. Unified together. In truth. Not unified beside some weird idea that, you know, we sit in a circle and sing kumbaya. We're unified in the truth. What God's word teaches, what God's word says, we hold fast to that. And we know the Holy Spirit will glorify the Son. The Son will glorify the Father. They glorify one another in perfect unity because what they have, what they declare, what is theirs is free. It's open. No kingdom, no, no, this is mine, this is mine, that, get away from me. That's what men do. That's not what God does. God says, look, I am giving you the greatest gift I have in heaven. That is my son. And he's going to bring to you righteousness so you can be prepared. And just because I know the weakness and frailty of man, 
I'm also giving you the Holy Spirit to empower you. So whatever we need to do can be done by the power of the same Holy Spirit Jesus was telling his disciples they needed for the road in front of them. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for truth, Lord. I pray, God, that we might be able to hold fast to the things that your word is teaching us. Help us make application, not just to understand this is a necessary part for the disciples so that they can become the men they want to be, but this is a necessary part for us so that we might become the men and women we want to be. So, Lord, you may be glorified and magnified. And I look at our nation and where we are, where we began and where we are today. And maybe my view of the past is distorted. I don't know, God, but I know the road we're on now does not lead to honoring you. So, God, may we as a church look inward and say, are we discipling? Are we raising up people? Do people understand what they believe do you know what the gospel is? Do you understand how to pray? Do you know how to study your word? Are these things taking seed within you? And then are you passing them on and passing them on and passing them on? God, we need you today more than we have ever needed you. We need you now, Lord. We need your spirit to guide us, open our eyes, open our understanding. Because the victory that we're going to have is not some political solution or some suit in a courthouse or some, something out there, <clears throat> some way the world would do it. The way you do it is by empowering men and women through your spirit to be your disciples, to share your truth, to live our lives out loud before the world, to love one another as Christ has loved the church, to see our trust and hope and faith in Christ, whether he delivers or not, just like Rock Shack and Benny, to be able to look into the face of the king and say, whether God delivers me or not, I don't care. I'm not bowing. There is one God and one King and one name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's I am for Christ. I stand with Jesus. Wherever that line takes me, wherever we go, may our colors be clear. May our lives show the distinction, not imaginary, not some list of things we think makes you a whitewashed tomb. But in reality, I stand with Christ. I stand with him full of my frailty and brokenness, my eyes on him, and I trust him. And I will walk in peace as I trust him every day, whether it's easy or hard, no matter what comes, for he is able to do abundantly beyond all I can ask or imagine according 
to the power of the spirit that works within me. So God be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.